If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into Nerds gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Join us on the History Extra website this week as we dig into the history and mystery of Stonehenge in our special Stonehenge-themed week. With a 30-day free trial to our digital subscription, you can access exciting Q&As featuring Stonehenge experts, quizzes, opinion articles and more. For a full week of history that you certainly won't want to miss, visit historyextra.com forward slash join. That's historyextra.com forward slash join for more information. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. We don't talk about gardening very much on this podcast, so today we're going to rectify that as Dr Claire Hickman dishes the dirt on why gardens were such an integral part of the scientific revolution of the late 18th century. Putting the questions to Claire was David Musgrove. Today, I am talking to Dr. Claire Hickman, who is author of The Doctor's Garden, Medicine, Science and Horticulture in Britain. So, Claire, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. That's a pleasure. So, we're talking about gardens uh, from the 18th, later 18th century and early 19th century. Now, uh, 
for some of our listeners, that might immediately bring to mind uh, thoughts of sort of Jane Austen-esque people parading round lovely parterre-type gardens, formal landscapes and the like. But that's not what uh, that's not what we're talking about. So I'm just going to quote uh, a little uh, bit from the Blurb View book. Uh, gardens became sites not just of leisure, sport and aesthetic enjoyment, but also of scientific inquiry and knowledge dissemination. So we're taking a slightly different tack here. Would you be able to give us a sort of a top line summary of what it is you're trying to say with your book? Yeah, so um, it's exactly as you say, really, and that garden historians, it's not just people who think about um, that period who aren't experts. People who are experts in it often focus on like the really big landscapes, so like Stowe Gardens, um, Stower Head. These are hundreds and hundreds of acres of um, designed landscapes with sort of big lakes and um, yeah, parkland to kind of wander around. What I've focused on in particular is kind of smaller, much smaller gardens. So often either domestic gardens that doctors had, so kind of professional class, so these are not the landed gentry, they're professionals, they're quite well off in their practice, but they've got these much smaller landscapes that are sort of in suburban areas often. So they're just kind of in that rural bit just outside big cities. Um, so I've been thinking about those gardens and how they relate to other botanic gardens. So kind of the institutional botanic garden or the public sort of space with a botanic collection in it. It's kind of like where these scientific things are happening. And then thinking about how those connect together. So it's kind of thinking about how people, plants, um, ideas move between the gardens, sort of both within Britain, but also in relation to a bit more of a global context. So it's kind of smaller gardens, ones that have a kind of scientific interest that you know, medical practitioners are either using or designing, um, and then think about how they relate to other broader concerns. Okay, so you've just dropped in a couple of things there. So we've got these smaller gardens, which uh, are being run by kind of men of letters, men of science, men of medicine, and then you also mentioned botanic gardens. So, so are those two separate things? How should we understand them? So they are, they are related, but yeah, they are kind of separate things. So your institutional botanic garden is um, just a scientifically arranged set of plants. So these are places where the plants are arranged in relation to each other in terms of kind of plant families, um, and they're arranged in beds, and they're designed to be used as kind of teaching resources mainly by medical students. So these doctors have also got those kind of collections, but they're kind of a smaller collection, that they haven't got the bigger, you know, an entire garden dedicated to that. And they're in these kind of places that have also got agricultural experiments. They've also got, you know, nice walks to wander around. You might have an orchard to walk through. You might have statues um, and a lake. In the case of John Coakley Letsam, who's got his sort of garden in Camberwell, these are sort of features he's got. So they have a smaller botanic thing that relates to other things they're doing, but it's not just the botanic collection. And so the, the, the larger botanic gardens you mentioned, what was their pedigree and were they um, were they commonplace in the in the later 18th century or were they still just developing? They were still just developing, really. So the, they started as institutional gardens um, kind of in the 16th century. It was kind of when places like Padua, um, Montpellier, kind of Paris, they start having these university gardens really so there's universities developing and you have those kind of things that you need like astronomical um, measurements and observatories you're starting to also put in botanic gardens they're kind of part of your scientific apparatus but their longer pedigree is really kind of the herbal garden so kind of the physic garden that you might have had 1700s 
same as monasteries, um, which were kind of running a sort of part, you know, hospitals. They were looking after monks that were sick. Um, and those herbs were being used in medical practice in a really early period. So this is kind of a later thing where things are being classified. People are concerned about how things relate to each other. And this kind of attempt to kind of scientifically arrange those plants using kind of new ideas about how they relate to each other and what their structures are. Okay. And so the, the smaller gardens that you mentioned, the doctor's gardens and those sorts of things, how do they relate to the botanic gardens? Because presumably the, the, the doctors, if they wanted to, to go and explore the botanic stuff, they could go to those botanic gardens. Why did they need their own um, gardens? Yeah, so this is an interesting point. So um, in Britain, there aren't that many botanic gardens on a scientific basis, actually, in this period. So um, the medical schools of Edinburgh and Glasgow, Oxford and Cambridge have got they're very specialist botanic gardens. So doctors are coming into contact with them in their training. So, you know, they know what they look like. They know how to use them. In London, for example, where a lot of my medics I've thought about are based, um, there's only the Chelsea Physic Garden, which is for the apothecaries. It's not actually for the physicians. So on the one hand, you don't have somewhere to go, which is why William Curtis, as an apothecary, but with help from other physicians, sets up the London Botanic Garden, which is a subscription garden, so that there is somewhere that people, not just doctors, but other people can go to. But it's also because they wanted to learn about what these plants did. They wanted to kind of, because plants were coming in from around the world, right? This is a period of trade, um, of plants coming back. We have people like Joseph Banks going on the Captain Cook voyages, bringing back plants to um, centres like Kew Gardens, which is developing. And these doctors are also kind of got the techniques to know how to grow things or at least employ the gardeners who know how to grow things. But, you know, they know about plants. They've been taught about them as part of their training. So they're sort of part of this great endeavour in the 18th century to understand what these new plants are, what their value is, how they can be used, particularly their economic value. That's one of the things they're very concerned about. And if you grow them in your own back garden, you can kind of see what happens to them and you can sort of watch how they develop. And so conduct experiments on them at home. I think we forget that the home is actually a really useful space so you can see when things are moving on. It doesn't just happen in institutions. It also happens, you know, in a domestic space. Can I just uh, pull you up on a, one thing you said there? You mentioned apothecaries and physicians. Might you be able to just explain the difference between the, those two classes of people? Yeah, so this is the uh, free structure thing that we talk about in this period, um, which is as medicine starts to professionalise, so it starts to have kind of guilds and it develops as, you know, identities of groups. We have three particular groups. So you have apothecaries, and the easiest way to think about them is they're more like pharmacists. So they're distributing drugs. They might also be seeing people and doing a bit of diagnosing as well. It's sort of a slightly general practitioner where we have that kind of group. Um, then we have surgeons, which are doing the more manual, chopping your leg off type work, which is obviously more than that surgery, but it's sort of developing in that sort of field. And then we have physicians. Um, and at this point, they're the ones that have the university medical education. So they have the degrees and um, so they can charge more money. Um, so they're kind of the elite end of the structure, really. Um, and they're the ones that you would call out to come to your home um, to diagnose with whatever you have and come up with whatever regimen they thought might help cure you and maybe get those kind of, you know, drugs from the apothecary 
or send you to the apothecary to get them. So one of the big things in your in your book, which I found really interesting, it was the way you sort of uh, describe how these gardens, uh, both the the, the smaller uh, doctors' physician gardens and the larger botanic gardens, are all part of a big network of a, sort of a network of science and research and people uh, engaging with each other in in quite a disparate way, probably across uh, quite large distances as well. Could you just uh, to explain a little bit more about that network sense to your research? Yeah. So. We often think about things coming into Kew Gardens. This is um, the classic narrative, really, is that Kew Gardens, which is under George III with Joseph Banks, who's um, head of the Royal Society, is a medical practitioner himself. Um, But he's kind of bringing this kind of plant material in from these kind of trade journeys. But actually, doctors themselves have got their own networks. So somebody like Dr John Fothergill, who's living in East London, he was writing to John Bartram in America. So if you think about, you know, the colonies of America, this is, you know, at the point where America is becoming independent. But we have people out there like John Bartram who's collecting things in the States and then sending them back to order, basically. So John Fothergill's writing and saying, can you find me these, like, things, any new plants that are like this type of thing, can you send it to me? So they've got their own networks. And then they share things between them. So uh, when Father Gill dies, Letsam takes his collection and has it in his own back garden. So they kind of travel like that. But then they also send things to each other. And it's quite a good way of maintaining a network with elite people as well who might be, you know, clients, might be your patients, is to go, you might be interested in this plant that has come in by this route. I can send you, you know, a seed or, you know, a part of it um, or a bit of plant itself. And the same thing happens with the botanic garden. So the Leithwall Botanic Garden in Edinburgh is relying on some of the people who are trained there, who've become doctors, who have these networks themselves, to send the plant material to them. So there's kind of network of sharing, um, of writing to each other, of having like plants as a, as a way of connecting um, in these sorts of places. Um, and they employ plant collectors themselves. So at one point they do send some plant collectors, um, two of my doctors, out to um, the east coast of africa um, to collect plants so that network idea speaks to a wider theme in your book of, of sort of looking at and understanding gardens as part of the scientific revolution that's going on in in the later 18th century which is you know tied in with things like development of anatomy and and other scientific techniques and developments so should we see gardens as part of this uh move to understand the world in a in a more scientific bent I mean, I think so. I mean, yeah, this is my you know, main argument, really, is that gardens aren't just static kind of places that you just use for kind of leisure, really. You know, they're not just that kind of place. They are where people are using and experiencing them in all kinds of different ways. And that kind of scientific revolution is about seeing with your own eyes and doing experiments yourself, um, and of using those spaces. So someone like John Hunter, who's um, a really major surgeon in this period, he has bees in his greenhouse in a glass hive so that he can watch them um, and see what they're doing. He kind of marks what they're up to um, and talks about things like when he um, tries to see how they can make a noise. He wants to know how bees make a sound. So he kind of pulls the wings off and does really horrible things to these bees. Um, but he's trying to work out, like, what is it to be a bee? Like, how do bees work? How do they function? 
And the way to do that is to have that somewhere where you can see them. So again, it's this kind of gardens as a place where things happen in them. So there's plants, but there's also animals. Um, there's also observatories. So John Letsom has an observatory in his back garden. So they are all part of this idea of knowing about the world, of the natural world being something you want to understand. And the way you understand it is by um, experiencing it yourself in kind of a sensory way. So kind of smelling it, touching it, seeing it. So so we should see the, the gardens of this period as very much scientific laboratories, as active places where research was being carried out. Yes. Um, amongst particular groups of people, obviously it's not everybody. Although, you know, all gardeners do experiments, don't they? I mean, I, I experiment all the time with like, will this grow in this part of my garden? Is it the right kind of soil? Um, do I need to feed it with something else? Like you can read up on these things now and there's like loads of gardening books, but a lot of what you do is trial and error. And I think that element of um, understanding by doing and experiencing yourself, I think has a long kind of history in that way. You've mentioned uh, Dr. John Letsom a couple of times already, and he's kind of a key figure in your book. And in fact, he is the, the, the cover figure in your book. There's a, a lovely painting of him uh, looking very much the figure of the Georgian gent with his family uh, in, in his garden. And you can just see sort of a bit of the glass house in the background. I wonder, could you try and give us a little bit of a sense of what it might have been like to visit Dr. John Letsom's garden? So the joy of Letsom, one of the reasons I use him in my book, is he writes his own guidebook um, because he wants to encourage people to come and visit. And he doesn't just write a guidebook. He also pays for the postman to live like in the lodge so the postman can let people in when they want to come and visit. So there is this sense that he has, you know, what we think of as the great British thing of garden visiting is already happening at Letson's Garden. So, you know, you would come in um, through, the, through the lodge that the postman would let you in through. Um, and then you would be confronted with like quite a decent sized kind of landscape. And um, it's up in Camberwell, which is um, overlooking the city of London, now very much part of London, but then was quite a rural village. So you've got this view out. So you can see like London as this great, you know, trading um, centre ahead of you. And then you would walk through, you know, various elements. So there's things you might expect for an 18th century garden. We've got, you know, statues. You know, statuary is a big thing, but we have Shakespeare, which is, you know, slightly unusual in this period. We also have, you know, Hygieia with the fates, which is a thing about Hygieia as um, a goddess of medicine, of hygiene. So that's kind of his medical practices, you know, in the statuary. We've got a lake with boating on it. So you've got that fun, pleasurable activity. And as you walk back up, you've got things like a mile long walk. So you've got blossom, you've got fruit. Um, so you get that sense of this is both beautiful, but also utilitarian, like you can eat the fruit. It's not just completely ornamental. Um, you then would walk up towards maybe the house. There'd be the vegetable garden. If you're there at lunchtime, you might see the gardeners feeding the tortoises on lettuce because there are, you know, tortoises and other exotic animals within the space. Um, you might go and visit the botanic collection. So it's got around, you know, 400 specimens of the botanic collection, which are all labelled. So if you took like a book with you, you could work out, you know, what these plants were and what you thought about them. Um, but then in between the ornamental beds, you might also find things like mangle wurzel. And mangle wurzel is this you know, type of turnip come beetroot. And Letts is one of the first people to grow this seed um, from Europe. It kind of comes over by the Royal Society of Arts and he grows it in his garden. Um, and he thinks it might feed the poor. That's one of his ideas around this. It's a great vegetable for that. But he also thinks it's beautiful. Um, and this kind of agricultural spectacle 
and the idea of improvement is also quite a big thing. So the garden is both, you know, ornamental. You can have that lovely sensory experience of smelling things within it, but it is also useful. It's a combination of the two things. So there's so there's sort of direct agricultural research going on in these places as much as uh, more nebulous scientific analysis and people trying to just get a sense of of, uh, of typology and things like that. Yeah, no, real scale. And agricultural experimentation is quite strong in this period. So George III himself, you know, famously Farmer George, is anonymously, although not very anonymously, because everyone knows who it is, but writing up agricultural experiments that he's sending in to kind of, you know, a leading journal of the time. Um, You've got people, you know, I've mentioned John Hunter with his bees. He's also doing experiments on, you know, animal breeding um, in his kind of garden in Earl's Court. So, yeah, there is that. They are part of this 18th century drive of um economic improvement and the garden is a good place to do that and the fact that the garden is the same as the farm this is one of those things i think is an interesting academic distinction that we have like journals for garden history and journals for agricultural history but actually there's a crossover between these things and you see it a lot more in these kinds of gardens that are a bit smaller where they are doing both things at the same time Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And I'm guessing like the whole Victorian experience with rhododendrons and Japanese knotweed tells us there's a long history of collecting things that look like they're going to be fun in gardens and not really thinking about their invasiveness. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So going back to the visitor experience, and you mentioned it's, it's fascinating that Lesson's got, got his, uh, his chap in the, uh, in the sort of the entrance lobby there. Um, who, who was visiting these gardens? Presumably it's, it's the elite. Who's allowed in? 
Yeah, this is an interesting thing about who's allowed in. So there are cases whereby um, there's a garden near Birmingham, which gets a bit of a trouble because people can come out of Birmingham and visit it. So he's very keen that the gardener does not let people in. So the gardener is often a gatekeeper. The gardener is often the person who decides who can come in. Um, But of course, a lot of, you know, the gardeners you would want to visit in this period. So we're thinking Capability Brown is doing the rounds of his like big landscapes. And they're like often the ones that people want to go and visit. They're quite hard to get to. So you've got to be able to afford the transport and the carriage to get yourself there. But even if you are an elite person, so um, we have Mrs. Boscoan writing to Mrs. Delaney. Mrs. Delaney is a well-known person who kind of um, designs kind of shell grottos, but also writes a lot about gardens in this period. And she complains that she gets to um, Lady Diver Clerks in Muswell Hill and that they're not allowed in because they don't have a ticket and they need to get this passport from Joshua Reynolds. And she's very upset that she has to get a passport to get in. Because for often you would turn up, and as long as the lord of the house isn't there, the gardener or the housekeeper, remember this in Jane Austen, there's the whole, you know, visiting Pemberley and the housekeeper showing you around. There's generally somebody who would let you come in and have a look because you were part of the, you know, gentry, you were part of the same class of people. And and speaking of classes of people, we talked quite a lot about the physicians and, and the people who are using these to, to understand the world around them. What about the gardeners themselves, the people who are digging in the dirt? What was their social status? Were they valued? Not as much as, you know, we would like, probably. I think in some cases they were. So if you were the head gardener, so the head gardener at the Leith Botanic Garden, um, which is part of, you know, Edinburgh University's medical sort of provision at the time um, John Hope who is the um but he's like the head of botany he's kind of teaching students about botany in this garden he's a medic himself he really values his head gardener because head gardener has got the expertise um and when he's sort of killed because he's involved as a customs officer in part-time and we'll come back to this part-time working thing then John Hope puts up a plaque to him in the botanic garden which is actually still there in the restored Royal Botanic Gardens at Edinburgh Botanic Cottage. This kind of move of sites, it's all, you know, 18th century stuff has been moved since. And he really respected him because of his expertise. And there is that element of people saying they need a good gardener, that having a good gardener is key to doing this. Having said that, the pay is really not very good. So, um, so we have that example where he's working as a customs officer as well as, you know, running the Botanic Garden. William Lang over at the Glasgow Botanic Garden is really struggling, so probably sets up an enterprise on the side selling plants in a way he's not really meant to because he's not really given much pay at all. Um, And then there's all the gardeners under that, you know, the people who are day labourers, the people who are, you know, we don't even know who they are often, um, coming in and doing quite a lot of work. So there is an element whereby you need to have an expert gardener because these plants are very expensive. Um, that you know you need someone you can trust you know, who knows how to grow them and clearly there are some gardeners who are so good at that that they do get respect but um, the idea of paying them does not seem to be all that strong and I think we do still undervalue horticultural knowledge and expertise actually the idea that everyone can garden I think is actually problematic when we think about what expertise we think is important. A lot of the people you've mentioned in our conversation and through your book are men I wonder is, is this is this a man's world? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about, say, Letsum at Camberwell 
is that he isn't there that often. So his practice is actually in the city of London. So he spends most of his time in the house in London. And at one point in one of his letters, he says that um, it's, a, it's the secret to a great marriage because he only sees his wife like at weekends and maybe every other weekend when he's busy. So she's out at Camberwell. So she's where this garden is. So you would imagine that she must be running the garden in some level or at least keeping an eye on things. But it's very hard to find out about women in this period. I mean, Bryony McDonough's written a book about women in the 18th century and their management of estates. But it's just very hard to find out about the women. So we don't get that many names. Um, we don't know what these women are doing. The men are busy working. So clearly someone is managing the day-to-day business of places. Um, in the case of the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, there is... Um, there is a woman who's an artist who does like beautiful botanical drawings and is part of the botanic garden there. But yeah, it's it's hard to find the gardeners, to be honest. These are this is always the problem with like historical research. You want to know about these people that are doing the things that are there doing the day-to-day elements. But of course, that's not what the archives represent. It's not the bits that are left behind for us. We know about the physicians and they write about all these things they're doing. And you're like, well, you're probably not doing this because you're running a busy medical practice. So someone else is doing your experiments and keeping an eye on them um, when you're not there. Okay. Um, right. One of the sort of the interesting sort of undercurrents in your book is the fact that these gardens uh, clearly are part of the broader imperial picture at the time. Britain having its empire, and, and uh, lots of lots of these plants and, uh, and and other products are coming in from other parts of the world. So presumably, uh, we need to understand it within the context of empire. And I think you mentioned. Uh, somewhere you talk about the exploitative economic trade routes that were part of these gardens so can you um, explain that a a bit more clearly please? Yes so I think this is an area actually that um, we need to do a lot more research on and think about in more depth but one of the things I started realising when I was writing this was if you've got plants coming back from the Americas you know you're not just having a ship that's bringing back your plants Um, so the whole transportation of things is clearly part of this network of ships, say, um, taking people, so taking, you know, people, slaves between different places, enslaved people. Um, You've also got the general trade that's going on. So, you know, plants are travelling along the same kind of trade routes as where um, other forms of trade are happening. So they're not, it's not in isolation. It's not like the plant collecting is happening outside of those mechanisms i mean just the getting things between places is clearly part of a bigger operation um and then also that kind of network of people so who are the people that you go to how do you if you go somewhere to do plant collecting you're probably going to go through the people that you know so people who are part of the you know the emerging empire who are in these other places who you are trading with are going to be the people you go through to go and find other things so i think that idea of the garden as somehow sitting outside of that is really problematic because all of these things are coming from somewhere else. I mean, our gardens are stocked full of plants that aren't native British plants. And the way that we collect them and the way they come across is all part of these wider trade routes 
and the transport between them. Now, presumably, there was a there was a great interest in getting the the really exotic alien sort of plants to come in, the things that would uh, surprise and amaze you, some you know some great big tree or something from from the Amazon or something like that. Um, did anyone ever worry about bringing in alien plants? Did anyone ever stop and think, well, maybe this we need to just think about the implications of that, or was that not something that people had considered at this point? I I have not seen this anywhere. It was more. How can we get this thing to grow? Can we get the right conditions for it? Like, do we need to put it in a glass house? What kind of compost does it need? What kind of soil? Like, what conditions? And there's far more concern about, yeah, growing it is what I would say. Because the more exotic it is, the harder it is to grow in Britain. I've got a great growing climate, but particularly for temperate things. So I haven't seen any concerns about that. And I'm guessing, like, the whole Victorian experience with rhododendrons and Japanese knotweed tells us there's a long history of collecting things that look like they're going to be fun in gardens and not really thinking about their invasiveness. Were there any uh, particular plants that came in during this period that came into the doctor's gardens or the botanic gardens that are kind of still with us today and make an impact on us now? Well, one of the ones that I was actually um, looking up, because um, I was thinking about kind of these new plants, um, is roses. So we think about roses as having this... Um, much older heritage we see roses particularly you know English in particular I would say not as in British just English roses and of course the earliest ones came over with the Romans the Romans you know they got them from the kind of trade routes from China it's all about empire again different bits of empires like the Roman empire is how we end up with the original kind of medieval roses but then the later 18th century roses the new cultivated forms they come from China so it's again the British trade routes going to China and we think about you know, ceramics coming back from China in this period of silk cloth coming back. The, the, it's again, the, the plants are traveling with them. So something that we take of, you know, really for granted are roses, but actually roses are still part of this same story. Right. Um, wrapping up, there's just a, a couple more things. Um, reading your book, it feels like there's quite a lot of modern concerns that sort of come to the surface through uh, through the, the way that you've analysed these gardens. You've mentioned the bees earlier, um, and obviously we're worried about bees and bee decline, so that's an interesting topic. You mentioned a little bit, bit about soil quality and people worrying about how to how to make sure their, their soil was in good shape. Again, a, a modern concern, and, and the mangle whales was a sort of agricultural uh, productivity. Um, but another concern that comes up in your book, uh, or which seems very relevant today is is the link to vaccines and uh, Edward Jenner and his garden. So can you just tell us a little bit about how that fits into the story? Yeah, so this feels like a surprising element, but it's actually where the research started for me. I was going to visit um, Jenner's house, which is in Berkeley in Gloucestershire. Um, and you can still go and visit. It's an excellent museum and you can walk around the garden. Yeah, so Edward Jenner is kind of the person who promoted vaccination for smallpox. So the origins of this are like, there's probably more than one person than Jenna developing using um, cowpox in vaccines as a way of protecting people against smallpox um, through vaccination. But he's the person that really promotes it and pioneers it and also pioneers sort of free vaccination for people who can't afford it. So the interesting thing about this garden is you walk around it, you suddenly see this 18th century rustic sort of temple at the back and it was built as, you know, somewhere for Jenna to go and relax in originally. It was designed as his sort of retreat in his garden. It wasn't ever meant to have any other purpose. But at the point where he decides that, you know, this vaccination 
thing is so important and he wants to vaccinate, you know, people who can't afford it. And people presumably start coming to see Jenna to ask him to vaccinate them. He sets up the temple in the garden as the place where people come to, presumably through the back gate and the wall. So, you know, he doesn't, they don't tramp through the house on the way through. Um, and he starts vaccinating the poor in his garden. So there is that sense of medical practice not just happening where you would expect it to. So not just happening in the doctor's surgery rooms or in their houses. But again, the garden plays that role as a space for kind of in this, for this one, like, you know, public health measures. And we now think of free vaccination programmes as being so central and you know, debates around it. But we have like Jenna and his little country house with his garden um, having the you know, people queue up to come and be vaccinated. So fantastically topical today. Um, and, and, and is Jenna's garden, that, that's the one to visit if you're going yeah. to try and get a sense of the doctor's garden of the 18th century. Is that right? Yes, it is. So, I mean, the problem with these gardens, as I said, they're in these kind of areas often just around cities. So they've been built on. They weren't the kind of gardens that were taken um, as serious historic objects. So they're not those big, you know, owned by peers of the realm type landscapes. So generally, most of them have disappeared. Um, and one of the few you can go and see is Jenna's garden. Um, so you can still go and walk around and you can see the vine, I think, came from a vine from Hampton Court Palace. Um, they have been doing some of Jenna's compost experiments recently in the garden and thinking about that kind of history. Um, so you can go and kind of experience that sort of sense of what it was like to be in one of those places. Okay, to wrap up, is there, are there any um, big themes that we haven't explored? Any any points you'd really like to make or anything we should take away um, to think about uh, in terms of scientific gardens from the 18th and 19th centuries? I think we've actually covered um, pretty much all of it. I mean, good work. <laughs> I think that the main thing is just this idea that gardens are living, breathing spaces, um, that they were populated by people. They had animals in them. There were other groups that came and visited them. They were connected to other places that they're not, they're not paintings. I think this is my thing. They're not just things to look at. They were things to be experienced. They were things to be used. They were places where, you know, you could trial these new things and see them happen um, outside your house. And I think it's just that sense of telling those stories of when we go and visit gardens now I think these stories are really interesting ones to connect us to the past because you know we are all now experiencing um, gardens in different ways so Covid highlighted the inequalities of things like you know land ownership but gardens for a lot of people or even just seeing a tree out the window or having you know something on the balcony space and watching it change on a daily basis became a really important part of our lives and I think we can connect to those 18th century doctors who were measuring the weather, who were going out each day, seeing what had happened, or going back in, you know, some cases two weeks later to see what had happened because they've been busy in between and seeing the change. And I think that element of change and excitement and, yeah, the joy um, that I think is also within these spaces is something I'd like people to, you know, connect with as well. That was Claire Hickman. Her book, The Doctor's Garden, Medicine, Science and Horticulture in Britain, is published now by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collin.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.